0: section 37 of the heirloom this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org the heirloom by t dothie lyle a mother's tears at last there is rest within a very few days of the interview in the italian garden of the convent with the nun sister agatha related in the last chapter Father St. Vincent de Saint-Croix, or, as we will otherwise now disclose him to be, no other than Colonel Kynrick van der Meulen in priestly habiliments and guise, turning his back upon St. Xavier's, the profuse hospitality of which for the past fourteen days he had enjoyed, and bidding adieu to his late travelling companion, the young, guileless, and unsuspicious priest, Father Liolta, the Reverend Mother Celeste, and the very few others whose acquaintances he had made, not forgetting Sister Agatha, the sad-faced nun. For Father de Saint-Croix, in his sojourn, had discreetly kept himself much aloof from those around him, shrewdly arguing to himself that the tacit exclusiveness of his demeanour would be construed into the superior sanctity and wisdom of the Holy Father, and the constancy of his seclusion within the walls of his cell would be attributed to his devotion, superior sanctity, and the fervour and reality of his spiritual life. So quitting the convent alone, father to St. Croix, under the pretense that he was due another convent in the vicinity of Jersey City and New York City, wended his way back down the dusty path between the groves of chestnut trees, and again caught the white-painted steamboat, Princess, on one of her southward trips to New York from Albany and Troy. Perhaps rather fortunately, the obscurity of the night, or rather perhaps the obscurity of the small and very early hours of the morning when the Princess reached her berth at the West Street Pier, favoured the unobserved arrival of the traveller as he stepped ashore on the garb which he assumed. And then, with a confident, unhesitating step of a man who knows every inch of his way, he threaded street after street in the cold, chill wretchedness of the unpleasantly early morning air to those uptown quarters into which the reader has never been introduced, where were Colonel van der Meulen's fro and bands, And sometime, rather late in the following afternoon for the first time for many weeks he put in an appearance once more in everyday attire at his little high-up den near battery park where for the first time this prince of man-hunters was introduced to the reader in the opening chapters of our tale and perhaps in the pages which we have written the reader has been told and seen enough of colonel van der to understand the attribute of his character which had lifted him in his particular calling on to such a pinnacle of fame Following up the information imparted to him under the conventional name of Sister Agatha by the widow and mother, Colonel van der undertook still another journey, but this time to a city which we need not name, to the northeast of New York, and here, in a new England college as he had been truly informed, he found in training the young boy Bertram Gonalt. But this would open a new page of his story which we shall not pursue, no obstacle was placed by the authorities at the college in the way of van der Muehlen interviewing the lad and the strong family likeness which he exhibited to the late owner of Vernwood, to the late murdered bertram and to of course his uncles lawrence and mervyn Gonot, left in the detective's mind no reason to doubt that he was the late bertram's son and consequently his true heir colonel van der Muehlen lost no time in communicating to mr lumley the result of his success in the united states and his discovery both of Bertram Gonald's widow and his heir. But the question arose in Mr. Lumley's mind when did the marriage of the late Bertram Goenold and Marjorie Gilligam take place. The nun, sister Agatha had told Father St. Vincent that their marriage was a civil ceremony only, and that they had been united before the registrar in the town of F., and this statement Mr. Lumley now felt it to be incumbent on him to prove. Search and inquiry both in London at Somerset House, and in the town of F was made, and in due time, evidence, and the registration of the marriage, a civil one only, was produced, with the name of one witness attached. It will be remembered that, long ago, on the disappearance of Marjorie, then only known as Marjorie Gilligam, but, in truth, Marjorie, wife of Bertram Gonall, from her Vernwood home, the bereaved and heart rent and disconsolate husband and lover, had sought alleviation of his deep sorrow or apprehension of ill in the solitude of the cloisters, and in the cathedral aisle, under the influence of the organ's assuaging, soothing, alleviating strains, as the sunbeams came stealing so softly and silently through the tinted panes, dyeing the sacred floor, and kissing and bathing in their warmth and light the altar cross. It will be remembered that two female forms in the garb of some religious sisterhood rose from their devotions near the altar, and as the husband lover sat there in deep rejection, aroused his attention and interest as they quitted the sacred fane. It will be remembered that the sorrow-stricken lover followed them from their sacred building, and then they were mysteriously lost. It was in one of these thickly-veiled forms, known in a semi-religious, semi-charitable local institution as Sister Judith Munro, that Bertram, though her garb concealed both face and form, believed he discovered the chief friend and confidant of Marjorie, and who had been the principal, indeed almost the sole, witness of their nuptials, and whom he hoped might give him some clue to his wife's secret and mysterious, if we may, let us call it, flight. After this, Bertram had again sought Sister Judith Munro, but she was said to have left the locality for some distant religious home. There seemed indeed to be a mystery about Sister Judith Munro, either about her presence or absence, which all Bertram's anxiety to penetrate could never unravel. But now it became, in Mr. Lumley's legal eyes, necessity to not only ascertain who and where Sister Judith Monroe was, but that a specimen, for comparison with the handwriting on the register of the marriage of Marjorie Gillingham and Bertram Gonalt, of her signature, if she were living, or, indeed, if she had since died, should be obtained. By means of inquiry, and a stratagem, which it would take us at the late stage of our story too long to elucidate, both these ends were gained. Sister Judith Munro was found in a religious institution in a distant and remote part of England, and, unknown even to herself, an example of her signature was surreptitiously obtained, so that when confronted with her own recent calligraphy, and that on the marriage register of the Gonals, she could not dispute, neither did she attempt to deny, that both were her handwriting, nor attempt to dispute her presence and complicity in the secret union of Marjorie Gilligam and Bertram Gonault. Indeed, why the union should have been secretly entered into, was another of the list of mysteries which will never be known, which involved Bertram Gonault's life. But bridging over the winged flight of years, we will for the last time conduct the reader in imagination, back once more to beautiful Vernwood after a lapse, following the events which we have just recited of some nearly seven summers. It is a bright, unclouded day in June. If possible, Verne was even still more beautiful than of yore. All that wealth and taste can accomplish has been lavished to form a superlatively beautiful home. Moreover, during the minority of the air, under good management and with no spendthrift to dissipate its products in riotous living, its borders have been extended, and its revenues, discreetly husbanded, have prodigiously accumulated and grown. Such is the Vernwood as we shall describe it under the bright June sunshine for the last time in the course of this tale. But, like as we have seen Vernwood plunged in its utterest depths of sadness, overhung, overwhelmed as by some mysterious murderous pall, so now, amid the flourish of trumpets, the flaunt of banners, and shouts of welcome, we will forget the dark chapters. The gloom, the shadow, the sorrow of the past, and look on it amid all the rejoicing which surrounds the homecoming of the heir, young Bertram Gonault. For the joyfulness of the present seems even to outshine the gloom and sadness of the past, and from many league have the expectant throng assembled to accord in fitting accents and with fitting honours, notwithstanding the dark clouds through which it has passed. Its welcome to the descendants of the old Time-worn race back to the old the beautiful the time-honoured home the mother marjorie too is there no longer a girl no longer a saint xavier's nun but tried in the crucible of affliction and mellowed by the influence of years and amid all the pride of motherhood and as the shouts of welcome ascended she cannot repress the floods of tears and the deep deep sorrows of those past memories which lie so indelibly imprinted on the profoundest depths of the wives the widows mother's heart like two conflicting intermingling torrents from mountain heights within her breast both joy and sorrow meet and clash and foam o womankind thy passions thy love the most perfect attributes of thy nature have brought thee many joys but have subjected thee alas to many woes but that bright day at Vernwood, like other days had passed and the heir once more was in possession of his own. Yes, Vernwood is bright and beautiful, but dare we darken the picture? There is one closed and ever silent chamber where the sunbeams never penetrate, in which no music of laughter ever echoes, into which no human footfall crosses the threshold, where the dust of time has settled undisturbed. Perhaps it were iniquitous to leave so pronounced a relic of so dark a sin. The ignorant and superstitious say, At night, when the moon shines clear and cold, They have heard uncanny echoes from within, Like some murdered victims wail. They tell, so says the legend, That for three nights in every year, The unrestful spirit of the past master of Burnwood Walks the terrace outside the closed chamber Of the rising of the harvest moon. But let us close forever, This sinister episode of our tale. The mother of the present air, as once she renounced the world, has now for ever bid adieu to conventional life. She resides at Vernwood, but far away on the outskirts of the property, on a richly wooded hillside. A bijou mansion has arisen amongst the trees, and although she seldom comes to the old mansion, where two painful memories are revived, this new abode is Marjorie Gernault's home. As to the future history and destiny of these characters, whose actions have interwoven with the network of our story, to the reader who followed this history thus far they may be soon and shortly told to take them seriatim as they appeared on our story's mimic stage horace windham as if the culture of choice roses was healthful and conductive to longevity lived to see most of the incidents which this book relates, and amid the healthful habits and pursuits of his retirement contrived to elude the slaying sight of the grim old king of terrors for considerably over five score years mr lumley who has shuffled off what he termed his bondage and martyrdom to the law, is now no longer young. By some manoeuvre, he has become the professor in fee simple of an English country seat on very reasonable terms, and having resigned the reins of the well-known and lucrative practice near Lincoln's infield into Mr. Willoughby's or other able hands, he seldom shows his face in town. Mrs. Chicketts, a lone lorn widow, keeps a lodging house near Maida Vale. For poor Chickets, whom she worried to death is dead. After a rather lengthened sojourn in England, old Jeff and Martha Massey, together with their son, Jules, returned to the United States, the two former returning to Maryland. But Jules, rather than proceed further, and having money in his pocket to spend, decided to settle down among other gentry and other gentility of his own color in the hub of the universe, the city of New York, where on Sixth Avenue, almost any Sunday evening, is tall, erect, and rather haughty form may be met, not less elaborately dressed and jewelled than when in the English capital, now the pride of himself and the pride of his race. By Jules's side, when on 6th Avenue, on the promenade, is usually to be seen a dark, fair one, whose ebon hue is lighted up by incessant smiles and the pearl-like brilliancy of faultless rows of teeth, which it seems to be her constant occupation to display. This is Lizzie whom Jules has honoured by making her his bride. There is another actor in this drama whose services in the cause of enlightenment and truth you must not forget. Neither are they forgotten, for Monk lived to an advanced and honoured age, and, in a sequestered glen near the mausoleum at Vernwood, in a grave around which rhododendrons bloom and where the somber shadows of a cedar fall, a tall and slender obelisk of faultless marble points upwards to the fleeting clouds or sunlit skies, telling in graven characters what monk had done. And there, let us only add, requiescat in pace" to the lettered honours of his tomb. Dr. Sirius Wells is neither more nor less, neither greater nor smaller than he was, while the little ferret man Paul Newgass is a New York man-hunter on his own account, for on his shoulders is the cloak of his master, that past master in his calling, random year and fallen. The two surviving of the triplet brothers, namely Lawrence and Mervyn Gonald, for so we will call them, by whatever name or names they were subsequently known, so far disappeared from the great tracts of civilization that their whereabouts was never afterwards generally known. They were believed to have retired into the great silver mining regions beyond the Mexican frontier and the Rio Grande, where, perhaps at the instigation of their beautiful Spanish-Mexican mother, and by the aid of the secret fraternity of the Sons of Cain, They plotted further crimes, or rather, let us hope, they lived to regret their past. Colonel Keinrich van der Meulen, for his intelligence, energy and smartness, and his complete elucidation of all the puzzling mystery in which the Vernwood tragedy was involved, received what was a mere fraction of the Vernwood revenues, $50,000 reward. And what became of him? The sun was fast sinking towards the horizon, When far, far away towards the towering peaks of the rocky mountains, a comfortable-looking prairie homestead seemed tacitly to invite us, after a long day's weary travel, to crave rest, shelter, and hospitality for hungry man and jaded beast. Both were granted. The work and travel of the day had come to an end as we sat together under the veranda of the cosy western home. The fumes of that solace of the western weary, the inevitable weed, were circling around our heads, scenting the pure, fresh prairie air, and enveloping our presence in a veritable haze. Away, out upon the prairie, and in the adjacent stockyard, our eyes roam away onto the wealth of its owner in vast herds of resting kine. by us, some half-dozen idle cowboys, after the labours of the day, had grown hilarious and boisterous over the chances of a game of yucca, played with dirty, greasy cards. And as Colonel Heinrich van der Mewen, who is owner of the ranch and boss, and is also our host, and we are his guests as we sit by his side in the agreeable falling of the gloom. Among the chances of his life, he tells us what we, dear reader, have told to you the story of the sapphire shield crossed by the sinister bar. And that, said Colonel van der Muren, was how I came to be a ranchero. The end of the heirloom by T. Duthier Lyle.